Hi, everyone, and welcome to our next edition of Meet the Creator for August 2023. Today, I'm in the lucky position of being able to interview Victoria Williamson about our next novel, Nora's Ark, which I loved. I can say that straight away. Um, so, hello, Victoria. It's very nice to meet you. Um, we usually ask our authors to start with a reading from the book. Are you, are you okay to do that? I'm very happy to read from the book, thanks. Wonderful. So what I'll do is I'll give you a little taster of Nora, who's the first character in the book, and then I'll also do a little reading from Adam, who's the second character in the book, and you can see both of their worldviews and maybe get a little bit of insight into their lives and what's going on with them. So at the start of the story, we've got Nora, who's 11 years old, and she's living in temporary accommodation with her father. Um, both of these children are living in Hull, but they're both living very different lives. So this is what Nora says about herself. I must be the only girl in the world who doesn't have a mum. I don't mean like Maya Turner from my old school, whose mum lives in another town because her parents are divorced. And I don't mean like Chelsea Mackay from my new school either who says her mum's got a super important job in New York and that's why Chelsea lives in a foster home here in Hull. I mean, I never had one to begin with. Dad says I was grown in a test tube in some space-age science lab, just like that film we saw years ago. But I don't know if I believe him or not. Dad doesn't always tell the truth. Last Christmas, he told me Santa couldn't come because we moved five times already that year and he didn't know the address of the hostel we were staying at. That wasn't true. He came to the kids down in the room down the hall and they'd been living there for less than a week. After Christmas, Dad said the bed and breakfast we were moving to would be the best place ever. But the yucky brown carpet in our tiny room smells of pee and I can hear the people next door yelling at each other through the walls at night. We have to be out of the room by nine in the morning and we're not allowed back in before six at night, which is okay on school days, but rubbish today is it's Saturday. Right now, Dad says I can't come to the shops with him, as he can't afford the bus fare for both of us. That's a lie too. Not about the money. We're so skint I can't even remember what colour a £10 note is. But about the shops. He took me to the park and told me to stay here till he got back. But instead of going to the bus stop, he went to the betting shop at the end of the road. He'll be in there watching TV till it's time to go back to the B&B and that means it's instant noodles and tomato sauce again for dinner tonight because he hasn't gone to the cut price supermarket like he said to go for out-of-date bargains. So that's Nora. So we find out from that that Nora lives in temporary accommodation with her dad. Her dad's lost his job, he can't afford the rent for the house and the council, council keeps moving them around from place to place. We find out that she's maybe a little bit kind of young for her age. I mean, she still believes in Santa, but I think that's maybe a nice little thing we learn about Nora, that she's still got some of these um, little beliefs. And um, that comes through through the rest of the story. And we find out that she's really been hit hard by the cost of living crisis because they don't have much money and they're looking for cut price bargains in um, supermarkets. And later we find they're using food banks. So... She lives a very, very different life from Adam, who lives in one of the big fancy houses at the edge of the park. And when Nora looks through the fence and sees this house, she thinks it's a fairy tale castle. But then through the story, we find out Adam's not living the most amazing life ever either. 
because Adam's got his own problems. Adam's recovering from leukemia, a form of cancer, and his parents are very overprotective of him because he had to be very careful during his illness that he didn't get germs from things. But now that he's recovering, his parents haven't stopped being overprotective. So he feels like he's living in this little bubble world where he's super protected from everything and he can't live his own life. And he feels very claustrophobic and very cut off. So this is what he says about himself. Finding the baby birds behind our garden fence is the best thing that's happened to me in months. The next door neighbour's cat got their parents, so the only way to keep them safe from the prowling cat is to put the nest somewhere out of reach till they're ready to fly. It was a really tricky rescue operation, seeing as I'm not allowed out of the garden. Luckily it's Saturday, so my home tutor isn't here making me do maths and essays. My father's at work as usual, and my mother's got her rubber gloves and disinfectant out and is scrubbing out both bathrooms, as she doesn't think our cleaner's done a good enough job. That means nobody's watching me for once. I found the key for the back gate in the kitchen drawer and sneaked out to the trees behind the fence. I wish I could have gone right into the park, but I'm not brave enough for that. I'm not a coward or anything. If there's one thing being in and out of hospital for the last couple of years has taught me is that I'm tougher than I thought I was. There's only one thing in the whole world that scares me, and that's my parents. When I was little, I thought my parents were superheroes. My mother ran an insurance company that employed hundreds of people and that meant she didn't have much time to spend with me. But she made sure that we had a few hours together for a picnic or a long walk at the weekend. Even though my father's law firm made him fly all around the world to meet with clients, he still had dinner with me every night when we got home and read me bedside stories after he'd done his evening paperwork. That was before I got sick. The sickness changed everything. We left our old life behind and moved to Hull so I could be closer to a clinic offering a new type of treatment. Instead of picnics with my mother, there were visits to doctors with white coats and serious faces. Instead of mealtimes with my father, there were tubes attached to my body pumping chemicals that made me vomit. Instead of bedtime stories, there was the endless smell of disinfectant in my hospital ward and the hushed voices of nurses telling the other dying kids to go to sleep. That, even that wasn't what frightened me. It was the look on my parents' faces every time they visited that made my heart pound. My mother used to be so calm and in control all the time. I'll never forget the panic in her eyes whenever I threw up or the numbers went down on the machine I was attached to. My father used to be so strong and certain about everything. I'll never forget the way he wrung his hands helplessly and looked so lost every time the doctors talked to him about me. Those memories stopped me going further than the line of the fence when I sneaked out of the garden gate for the birds, same as they always do when I dream of escaping. The thought of ever seeing that fear in my parents' eyes ever again keeps me from leaving the garden, even though I've been much better for months and the doctors say I can go back to school. I don't argue with my mother when she says I need to have a private tutor to teach me at home now and that it isn't safe for me to go out and play with the other kids. I don't beg my father to let me go back to the swimming lessons I loved more than anything, even though I hate being so overweight from all the medication and my biggest dream in life is to be an Olympic swimmer. I just do what I'm told, as that's the only way to keep the terrible fear out of my parents' eyes. So that's Adam, and that's the life he's living. And both children get to 
make friends, discover that the other person doesn't have the life they think they do. Adam thinks Nora has a wonderful amount of freedom, whereas Nora thinks Adam has this fairy tale dream life in his expensive house. And it's through rescuing animals in the story that they come together and make friends. And they both help improve each other's lot in life, which is really the fairy tale ending they were looking for. Well, that is um, an absolutely perfect introduction. Thank you so much, Victoria. And and I loved both characters for, for different reasons. Um, and this story, as with your previous books, deals with you've got main protagonists who are young people who are struggling with various difficult situations in their lives. Yes. And I wondered where the inspiration came for writing this type of stories um, and having looked at your background, I wonder whether it had anything to do with your real life experiences as an adult. I think very much being a teacher, because as a teacher, when you go into schools, you get a whole range of different children in one class. You get some children who, you know, their parents have quite a lot of money and they've got a lot of after school activities to go to. You get some children who are sort of in the middle range, but, you know, they're, they're getting along fine. And then you get some children who they don't have a lot of money and they're really struggling and their parents are maybe using food banks and they, they can't do all the extracurricular things. But that doesn't necessarily mean to say that the children in the class who, whose parents have a lot of money are doing the best in the class and are enjoying life the most and the kids whose parents are struggling are the ones who are the most stressed or having the most problems because it depends on a whole range of things. You know, um, so that's that's what I really find. Getting to know the children, you find maybe some of the children who seem on the outside to have everything that they want they've maybe got problems in their home lives that other children don't have and children who you know their parents are quite stressed maybe struggling with food banks and things but they still they've got maybe a different outlook on life so it's a whole it's a whole mix of children that you're dealing with and I think it's you've been quite privileged as a teacher to get to know these different types of children and they do open up to you and um, you see them making friends across different boundaries in a way that adults quite often don't adults tend to be quite kind of siloed into little bubbles you know this is the group who all went to university and did this subject this is the group who maybe went to college and studied this this is the group you know maybe from this area and they all stay in, in these little silos where there's children quite often they cross different divides that you know adults have sort of artificially created and that's why I like writing stories about children um, who come from different walks of life and who make friends because that's you know what children do and I think we can learn from children and the way that they're not quite as prejudiced as adults in some ways and they just they just want to make friends and if they can have something in common it doesn't have to be a background thing it can be just that we like animals or we've got the same hobbies and they're very good at making friends that way so I think that's just the message of the book is you know get to know people first before you make judgments. Definitely, definitely. And that comes across really strongly. Um, obviously, the um, Nora's Ark has strong themes of homelessness and child poverty, as you already mentioned. Um, and I think that is incredibly important because it's going to very much provide a mirror for lots of the children that are reading it. And we don't often get to see these issues and how they affect children. So I know you've had experience as a teacher, but did you have to do a lot of research into homelessness and child poverty? And did it shock you? 
Definitely, yes, because when I when you're teaching, you don't see the children's home lives. You yeah. maybe get told stories about it, but you don't even always hear the full truth. So when I was researching this novel, especially the things on homelessness, I was watching a lot of documentaries. I was reading a lot of first-hand accounts and really what a lot of people go through, especially what a lot of families go through in order just to keep the wheels turning and keep the children going to school was you know, really quite shocking things like the little scene in the, the hotel room where um, Nora puts the can of beans on the radiator. You know, that might be something that people go, yeah, well, that's not really going to happen in real life. That's the author just making that up. You know, that, that came from a child's account of what happened when they were moving from hostel to hostel. They were saying, well, we didn't have anywhere to cook. And if we wanted something like baked beans, then you heated it up on the radiator in a can. So that, that kind of thing really shocked me that you know, these kind of um, situations for children exist and they have to sort of accept that as their daily life, mm. you know, and even yeah. just still living living out of pot noodles and noodles and toast and things. That's, that's really what they're eating for dinner. And it, it really made you see how important it was for schools to provide a main meal of the day. Um, I also think that the book's it's about the importance of feeling heard as well, uh, especially by our families and um, obviously the power of friendship. And ultimately, it's a story full of hope, which I loved. So the themes of um, families and friendship, why are those themes so important to you? Because I think those are the most important themes to children. Yeah. You know, When you're in school, your family and your friends, they're your entire world. You know, especially I, I remember growing up, we didn't have the internet back then in the Stone Age. So but it literally was your whole world. You couldn't really connect yeah. to, the, to the wider world. And children, especially when they're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, they're not quite as internet savvy as older children. So really, their focus of their everyday lives is what's going on at home, what's going on with their wider family, and then what happens in school and what happens, you know, in their friendship groups. So because those are their main focuses, I like to put that in books because... I think it really helps children to see that um, here's a reflection of a child whose who's focus is, you know, school and home. And here's maybe some of the problems they face. And children can see different reflections of themselves in, in books like that. And I think that's really important for children from all walks of life to see themselves in books and to see a character who's maybe like them, who's facing the same kind of problems as them. I couldn't agree more. Um, and what struck me as well was the importance of being honest with your kids. We tend to think we're protecting our children when really we should just be telling the truth. And that's very, very much apparent with Adam's situation, obviously. Um, and his leukaemia has had a profound effect on the relationships in his family. And I found it so moving reading about how his mother had become so overprotective. And of course, I could empathise with it. Um, as a parent, I could empathise with it. But what I thought was so amazing was hearing how that affected Adam, because it had the opposite effect on Adam. It made him even more frightened and as if he wanted to stay being ill in order to get that attention. Did that aspect of the story need lots of research for you as well? I think that's just life experience. I think everybody's probably either experienced that themselves or they've seen it very close hand where you know, a parent wants to do the absolute best for their child, but in doing so, 
kind of covers them in cotton wool and thinks that that's protecting them from the world where actually children do need to, to go out experience things for themselves get upset have some hard knocks I mean that's that's a really really hard thing for parents to accept is yeah. that the world isn't going to be a perfect place for their children and no amount of protecting their children from it is is going to make the world a better place you know you really just have to help them become a little bit more resilient you know and I think especially these days where there's a, such a rise in children suffering from I think probably post-covid anxiety as well yeah. where the it's almost like a giant experiment where we've taken all of these children and put them in the same situation Adam was in where he has been protected from the outside world and he's got a sort of a private tutor like many children were doing their school stuff online and now we're seeing as the children have come back to school they're struggling with things that they didn't have a problem with before yeah. you know they didn't have a problem being out in the playground now a lot of children are overwhelmed by all of the children in the playground. They didn't have a problem maybe working on their own in class, whereas now they're worried, oh, I, I can't do this, you know, I need a bit of extra help. So I, I think in this, I didn't write it that way. I didn't know that COVID was going to be a thing, but I think it, it does really reflect a lot of children's realities of their parents maybe coming becoming a little bit more overprotective. And there definitely is a change in parenting from when I was growing up in the 80s and now. Growing up in the 80s, you had your own little sort of half square mile that yeah. you were allowed to play in with your friends. And as long as you were back by tea time, and as long as your parent could look out the window and occasionally see you going past on a bike or something, you could go out and play with your friends. That, that was fine. You didn't need to have an adult hovering over you all the time. I don't know, there, there are arguments for and against, but I'm not in favour of a parent or a teacher or an adult of any kind standing over a child all the time. I think children need time alone to be themselves, either on their own or in a group, and to negotiate things themselves. So I think this is a story, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale of what can happen to a child and what can happen to their mental health when they are, you know, put in cotton wool and told, no, the world is a scary place, you can't go into the world. And Adam eventually goes, fine, if that's what you want me to believe, I'll believe it because I'm so desperate for you to just not be scared all the time for me. I'm so desperate to have your attention that I will just, I'll be the boy you want me to be. I'll, I'll lie in bed and I'll be sick if that's what you want, <laughs> which is a real shame. Well, it's been absolutely a delight talking to you, Victoria. Um, and, and as I say, I did thoroughly enjoy reading the book. So thank you very much, Victoria. Thank Thanks you. very much. It was great to be here.